One of the joys of pastoral ministry is having the privilege to work with young men like Ethan. Thank you, Ethan, for leading us in confession this morning. Um, it's been a joy to work with this dear brother, also to have Noah Akins on staff with us here, working as our worship intern. And for those of you who have been here for some time, you know we've had a number of both men and women who have uh, made their way uh, through Cornerstone, uh, serving as interns here. Our dear sister, Sarah Nixon, a name that a number of you will know, recently graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando with her counseling degree and is now serving at a church in Orlando. Praise the Lord. Our dear brother Christian Brewer just graduated with his Master of Divinity degree at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and has just accepted a position as a pastor in Jackson, Mississippi, which warms the cockles of my heart. Uh, Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church. He'll be serving there as a youth minister, and they'll be making their way to Jackson uh, later in the summer. I'm very grateful for that. And I'll actually get the chance to see uh, Mr. Britton Brewer when I am in uh, St. Louis uh, next week. He will uh, be there serving with um, RTS as well, and he is um, right now working on his postgraduate degree up, in, up at Calvin uh, College up in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan. And so uh, some of these names for some of you are, are, you don't have names and faces to connect them with. I, I know that. But for many of you, when you hear those names, uh, a smile, I see it. It comes across your face because you remember these young men and women who the Lord has granted uh, that we have a season of influence and discipleship and training in. And to see them continue to walk with the Lord is a beautiful thing. It's just a reminder that we should be praying for the next generation as we consider the peace and the purity of the church going forward. For when the Lord gives good gifts to his church, doesn't he most often wrap them in people? What a gift he has given to us in these wonderful interns. Well, this morning we're in Mark chapter 11. You see it there before you in uh, the bulletin. It is a section that most often we would consider um, right before uh, Good Friday and Easter. And the reason is that in our church uh, calendar, we typically keep pace with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ every year simply as a discipleship tool for us as a congregation, not commanded uh, in the Scripture, not required uh, from the Word, but a, a helpful discipleship tool to remember the life and the ministry of Christ and the church every year as we walk through the calendar uh, together. And typically, the week before uh, Good Friday and Easter, we're reading Mark chapter 11 or one of the complementary accounts in the other Gospels of Jesus' triumphal entry. We refer to that Sunday affectionately as Palm Sunday. So if this morning you find yourself wanting to lift up palm branches at the end of the service, I know where that came from, but that's not today. Today is uh, later in the church calendar in what we call ordinary time or the time of the church, which is most of the time in the church calendar. And isn't that true for our lives? Most of our times is ordinary times. Um, what the, the scripture actually refers to as chronos time, chronology, from where we get the word chronology. Most of our time is just one day after another, ordinary days, Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. But then occasionally there is what we call kairos time in the scripture. 
This is special time, time that is set apart for the working of God in a unique and fashioned redemptive form. And we definitely see that this moment of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is a kairos moment. It's a moment of fulfillment. It's a special moment in time. And Jesus is walking in the richness of the Old Testament prophets as he models himself after the promises of those Old Testament scriptures as the hope of the nations, the King of Israel, the Messiah, the long-anticipated one. As he embodies in every way uh, what it is that the scripture has told us to be looking for. And yet, the men and the women who gather and actually sing Hosanna and lay down their cloaks and wave the palm branches, they have a few things right about understanding this moment, but they have more wrong about understanding what it really means and its significance. And like often is the case with us, we think we know things. And we know a few things. But when we get into interpreting those things, we're often very surprised that we saw something, but we didn't see nearly clear enough. As we enter into this passage in Mark chapter 11 today, we're praying that the Lord would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and wills to obey everything which He has given to us in the Word. Let's look together at Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now when they, that is the disciples, along with Jesus, drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter uh, it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back there here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, now as we sit here in this word having been read, In your presence and in the presence of your people, we would ask that you would grant your spirit in great measure. For we who have eyes cannot see without the Spirit's help. He alone is the interpreter. He will make it plain. Will you grant him to us now in great measure so that we might see and behold the wonderful mysteries of this, your word, and that the testimony of our time together in it would be 
that we have met with the living God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might remember that moment in Roman history, late in the Roman Republic, when Julius Caesar in January of 49 B.C. was mounted his horse and he came to that uh, fateful river known as the Rubicon. Uh, the Rubicon, which, which flows right at the north end of Italy today, what we would call Italy, which then was the border between the northern republic and the southern, what was called Gaul in the, in the south. Uh, Caesar, this young general with great ambitions and aspirations, came there with a legion of soldiers and he was going to invade in the south with those soldiers and it was a breaking of the law to enter across into another precinct, to come with the threat of war. But there as he was on the banks of the Rubicon, um, much to the reports of historians, uh, there was deliberation, uh, but there was ultimately a kind of spiritual resolve and in some cases, kind of mythological happenings that persuaded him that he and the legion should indeed cross the Rubicon. When they crossed the Rubicon, this was an act of war. It was a kind of rebellion. And it ultimately meant that civil war would ensue in Rome. And it would be shortly thereafter that that would indeed be the case. And, and one era in Roman history would give way to another era in Roman history. The Roman Republic would become the Roman uh, empire. Now that phrase, crossing the Rubicon, probably lands on most of your ears with at least some knowledge of that history. It was a fateful moment where after having made this step, everything would be different. Nothing would be the same. Uh, this was, if we could put it this way, the, the point of no return. To do this meant you can't turn back. In many ways, Mark chapter 11 is that kind of moment in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's not a Rubicon, it's not a river, but instead it is a city gate. It is the outlying precincts of Jerusalem, Bethany and Bethpage as they're called there on the southern end of the Mount of Olives. As Jesus here makes his way to Jerusalem, he is proverbially passing over the Rubicon. Everything now will be different. Now it's very clear that what Jesus is moving towards is not going to look like an earthly victory as in the case of Julius Caesar. It's actually going to look much like an earthly loss. For he's not going to come out of Jerusalem without dying first. Now think of how odd it is to say it that way. He's not going to come out of Jerusalem without dying first. I didn't say he's going to die in Jerusalem and stay there. That's not the end of the story. But he's not going to get out without dying. He's not going to get out without suffering in the crucible of his mission, what it is that the Lord has called him to do. But as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he's not a victim of circumstances. This is, this is not him at the mercy of men and nations. It could be read and interpreted that way. No, he is there on mission. He is there to accomplish that mission, which had been planned from before the foundation of the world, according to 1 Peter. And in fact, that plan that was, that was put in place before the foundation of the world was so certain that John would write in Revelation that this lamb, speaking of Jesus, 
was slain from before the foundation of the world. Now that'll do a little number on your mind if you try to understand that in times of human expansion, but it means to say it was as good as done before creation even existed. This mission is a mission from God. And Jesus knew this. Every step of the way he was following his father, wasn't he? He had come to do the will of his father. It was his meat and drink, he said, to do the will of his father. He's not going into Jerusalem unawares of what it is that's faced him. You remember in the previous chapter, he's actually been preparing his disciples for what it is that he would experience. That he's going to go there. He's going to be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be put on trial. And ultimately, he is going to be crucified and he is going to die. And do you know, here in Mark chapter 11, we're actually entering the final week of Jesus' life. All of the things that Jesus has said would happen multiple times to his disciples in the previous chapters, we will see unfold systematically as we work our way through the rest of the Gospel of Mark. One of the things to note at this point, though, is that though we're entering, quote-unquote, the final week of Jesus' life, and yes, I understand the irony in that statement as well, he is alive uh, today, and he is at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. But his earthly life, previous to his death and his resurrection, the last week of his life in that sense, um, Jesus, as he makes his way there, is doing so in complete fulfillment of what has been prophesied before. He knows what he's up against. And he sets his face like flint to accomplish it. All of this prediction that takes us back really to the Old Testament over and over again in Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 11. In fact, starting with the places that are mentioned in the text. Bethany. Bethany's right there in verse 1. It was one of Jesus' favorite places on the outskirts of uh, Jerusalem, a place that was only two or three miles from uh, the city. If a traveler was approaching Jerusalem on the east side, maybe coming around where historically Jericho would have been, um, they would have passed through Bethany on the way. And if they approached a little closer to Jerusalem, a little district on the, on the south side of the Mount of Olives was this district known as Bethpage. And Mark is rooting this historically, giving us a real sense of the path of this triumphal entry, where actually the twists and turns took place. Jesus knows these words like the back of his hand, we might say. These are his stomping grounds, if he ever had any. Because it was here in Bethany and around Bethpage and in Jerusalem where he continually traversed, staying most often in Bethany, as we'll see him do in the, previous, in the following chapters, going in and out of Jerusalem, because it's there where Mary and Martha uh, lived. And it was there where Lazarus, his very dear friend, lived. And that seemed to be the place that he was sort of ground zero, his home. He, they had a permanent cot, we might say, for Jesus there in Bethany. Now, what's interesting about Mark 11 and the way that Mark 11 unfolds is that Jesus has just come through, arguably, the most memorable of all of his moments in ministry, coming out of Bethany on this travel, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. John tells us in John chapter 11 that what Jesus has been doing, what has just happened in Bethany, is the resurrection of Lazarus. He has just raised Lazarus from the dead. 
Mark, having very uh, different purposes than John, doesn't spend time reporting on that encounter with Mary and Martha and ultimately uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. But, but that moment in Jesus' ministry has unfolded just days before this triumphal entry. Which means, as John notes for us, many who had been quite skeptical of Jesus' ministry now are believing in him. And the crowds have grown to sizes and proportions of which they had not ever grown before. And the Pharisees and the scribes who have been angry with Jesus from the very beginning and out plotting against him are now dead set on his death and are plotting his demise. At this pivotal moment, after the resurrection of Lazarus, at the peak of what we might say is his popularity in ministry, and the threat of his own life reaching a fever pitch, he enters Jerusalem. That's important to see. Jesus has been saying throughout the gospel, now is not my hour. Now is not the time. He would often do a miracle and say to the person he did a miracle to, don't go tell anybody about this. People will get very excited and now is not the time. He has been working very, very concertedly to tamp down the kind of excitement about his ministry knowing that he was following the will of his father and when the time was right, only then would he begin to welcome the kind of publicity, the kind of attention that ultimately his mission would deserve. That moment is now. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. This pivotal moment, he comes to make, as it were, clear who he is. And notice how he does it. He does it with a donkey. <laughs> he tells his disciples that they are to retrieve a donkey for him. And in fact, isn't it interesting, almost five verses of our text is committed to getting a donkey. Of this triumphal injury. This is a lot of ink. On retrieving a donkey. This, if you're just simply looking over the narrative, you're thinking to yourself, I don't think I would have spent as much time on these details. I think I would have included a few more anecdotes about other things going on around Jesus. Why so much attention given to the donkey? Well, Jesus here is making a brazen move. He here is speaking with his actions. He here is preaching with his decisions. He is showing them who it is that he is. He is now by mounting this colt, this foal of a donkey, as we read just earlier in Zechariah chapter 9, he is identifying himself openly and publicly as the Messiah that the people of Israel have been looking for. He is at this moment saying, it is as some have surmised, it is as many have rejected, it is as some have questioned, but now let all doubts be laid aside about what it is that I am claiming. I am the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come to save His people, Israel. This moment is Jesus going public, we might say, having a coming out party with regards to His Messiahship. Yes, there were many people 
traveling on donkeys and horses and all kinds of other beasts of burden. But having now the crowd with such excitement over the resurrection of Lazarus and the Pharisees so ruthless and ready to kill him, he doesn't shirk away. He doesn't try to dispel the crowd. He doesn't tell people to hush. He gets a donkey and he rides in to the city of Jerusalem. He does it, of course, not for a matter of comfort or convenience, as many would, would, would indeed do. He's not injured or, or lame and needing this donkey. In fact, isn't it interesting that nowhere else in all the Gospels are we told Jesus rides anything. Every time that we see Jesus other than this text, you know what he's doing? He's walking or sitting, mostly walking. And here is the only time in all of the Gospels he decides to ride. He just got really tired, right? No, he's making a deliberate choice. He's making a statement that now his moment has come. We should ask the question, though, why a donkey? This is not necessarily the beast of burden that we would have chosen for Jesus. Certainly probably not the beast of burden that, uh, that the disciples would have chosen uh, for Jesus. Don't all great men um, ride horses? Uh, Julius Caesar rode a horse when he crossed the, uh, the Rubicon. That's what he was riding with the legion of, of soldiers. I mean, Alexander Great, uh, you know, had Bucephalus, and, and uh, uh, George Washington had blue skin, and uh, all of the great horses uh, of history, uh, the great men who, who um, rode them, and the kings that mounted them, and the leaders who wanted to make a statement. You had to have a beast of burden that reflected the greatness of the man. Why is it here that Jesus actually takes up a donkey? It's almost comical. Imagine seeing someone like Alexander the Great on a donkey. You know, let's go take the city by storm on a donkey. But here is Jesus. Doesn't seem right. What's he saying? Well, every move of Jesus is always filled with purpose. Remember that. Remember this in reading the Scriptures. You will see strange things in the Scriptures. Amen? You'll see odd things. You won't necessarily understand them. That there'll be times where details are emphasized and other things you wish you would talk about it doesn't say anything about. The mystery and the strangeness of the Scripture is purposeful. It's not, it's not mistaken, as scholars would like to tell you. It's, it's, not a, it's not a creation of man. It's from the pen of God. We should expect God to write different than men. God is looking for different things than men are looking for. The strangeness sometimes of the narratives of the Bible and the details of which it is given points us to the interests of what Jesus and God have with regards to the text of Scripture, what He wants us to know. The fact that it spends so much time on a donkey is, of course, taking us back to the Old Testament. It's taking us back to Zechariah 9, where we are told that this righteous one who will come, that salvation will be His, He will come humble, He will become mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. And taking up the prophecy of Zechariah, Jesus was claiming to be this long-anticipated king of Israel, and he wanted the people to know two things. Who he was, and what it was, or what it meant for him to be who he was. Who is he? He's the king. He's the Messiah. What kind of king and Messiah is he? He's one who rides a donkey. He's a humble king. He's a servant king. He's a king who's not come to destroy with a sword. He's a king who's come to save with his life. He is a king who is righteous. 
He is a king who holds salvation in his hand. He is a king who is a servant, who has emptied himself and poured himself into the form of a servant, being obedient to his father, and as we will see in the unfolding of Mark, obedient even to the point of death. Yeah, he's not like the Julius Caesars and the Alexander Greats of our world. He comes in humility. He doesn't come in worldly ambition. He comes with divine purpose and a divine plan. You get that hinted at here in the the note of unriddenness that's mentioned here in the text. That this was a cult that needed to be unridden, that no one had ever ridden before. And you think to yourself, well, why is that the case? Why did Mark make a point of that? Because Numbers 19 makes a point of that. Deuteronomy 32 makes a point of that. That the Messiah and the King would come on a donkey unridden because an unridden donkey is used for a sacred purpose. He's not a normal beast of burden that would carry cargo and luggage and you know, right alongside your, your suitcases, here comes the king. We put him on there too. No, this is a donkey that is set aside for a sacred purpose. Here is the cold on which no one has sat. Only here is Jesus coming to fulfill this sacred purpose. This is who I am, he's saying. This is what I am like. A king righteous, full of salvation, humble, ready to serve, mounted on a donkey. And you can see in the text of Scripture that the people, the people got it. <laughs> they actually got it. They understood that he was making the claim to be the Messiah. They understood Zechariah 9. This is hard for us to believe. It really, I believe it is because we know our Bible so little, right? <laughs> we think to ourselves, like, how did they know that you know, when he mounted a donkey, this meant something? Well, they, they knew their Scriptures uh, being trained in them from their earliest of stages. That they knew and had imbibed the Old Testament Scriptures to the degree that they, when they saw something, they recognized its connection to what God had been revealed. And instantly we see a response, homage being given, right? Praise, adoration coming forth from the people. Presumably the people in the region of Bethany. Now as this cold has been gathered from Bethpage, he's mounting it and riding it some distance, several miles into Jerusalem. And as they see him along the way, they begin laying their cloaks down. This is the one who just raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the one who's done all those miracles. And look at what he's saying. He's on the cold. He's going to ride on the cold into Jerusalem. This is what all of the prophets have been telling us. This is what we've been waiting for. One commentator put that their glad submission and adoration to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ at this moment was so deep that their willingness was to give up the things that they owned and let him even trample over them as he made his way to Jerusalem. As Jesus moves past Bethpage on those eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, the streets would be filled with pilgrims. This was Passover time. This is the busiest time of the year. This is Christmas in Jerusalem. It's the busiest time of the year. And as people begin to flood the streets, as others are beginning to lay coats down and wave these branches, a song begins to spring forth from the people of Israel. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it's understandable that they would be reciting these words. This is actually Psalm 118. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 were the psalms 
that the people of Israel would sing on their way to Jerusalem during Passover. It was the normal, we might call the, the travel songs. Like maybe you, you have a travel soundtrack, you know, you hook up the, uh, your phone, you Bluetooth now, I'm trying to think how the technology works. You Bluetooth it to your, to your, to your car and, you know, you've got your favorite travel songs. You know, you've got your soundtracks on the way. And I'm sure you've got Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 uh, in that soundtrack. No, probably not. But Psalm 113, Psalm 118, as they go to the sacred purpose for the Passover, these would have been the songs they would have sung along the way. They, they sang them what's called antiphonally, meaning that one side would sing one line and the other side would sing another line. So it's like a responsive reading here at, at Cornerstone, very similarly. So you thought we just made this stuff up. No, we get this stuff from the Bible, right? That the people of God sang antiphonally. They responded to each other and were encouraged by hearing those variety of voices. We're actually instructed in that with regards to the scripture. These psalms are actually referred to as the Hallel Psalms. You can hear in the word Hallel, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. These were worship and adoration songs. They immediately begin applying Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. A word that means save us. Save us. They get it. This is, this is the Messiah. And, and the word Hosanna, actually in the, in the, in the Greek, Hashiana, this word means more than just an invitation or a plea. It definitely means that. Save us, a plea. But over time, as words often do, they take on... Uh, deeper and even more profound meanings. It had not just simply the cry of to save us. It had in that cry the hope that you have seen your salvation. That's what they're saying as they shout these words. Not just save us like I hope you will, but save us you will. That was the spirit of this song. This was the expectation of the people who were walking with Jesus along the way. Can you imagine how Jesus must have felt? What encouragement and what joy. I mean, this is the moment he's been building towards for the last three years in his earthly ministry. To get to this climax and to realize there's so many devoted believers in him as he goes to the darkest and most difficult point in his ministry. And he hears the hope-filled voices and he sees the hope-filled eyes of these Israelites as he enters into Jerusalem. And the, the very word of God... That he himself has been a, the scribe of. He hears now being rehearsed by these people who have rightly connected that he is the Messiah. What encouragement. What incredible joy this must have been for Jesus. Except if the scripture makes it clear that was not his response at all. Now if you look at Mark to try to find his response, you're going to look in vain. Mark doesn't spend time upon how Jesus received these words from the people. But we learn as we look at both Luke and as we look at John's account, we learn that as Jesus entered the Kidron Valley and he saw the city rising before him in the distance, that he began to weep. Luke puts it this way in Luke 19.41. And when he drew near to the city and he saw it, he wept over it. There in the middle of the road, palm branches waving, Psalm 8, 118 being sung, 
cloaks being laid down in homage and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus weeps. Can you picture it? How confusing this moment must have felt for some of those who were around and singing Psalm 118. Oh, look, he's crying in joy. <laughs> is, he, is, he, is he okay? Is everything okay with Jesus? Luke gives us the longer version, verses 41 to 44, an actual expression from Jesus, what was on his mind. Do you know what was on his mind? It was this. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Oh, if you knew. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon when you will set up a barricade around you and they will surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of visitation. It's a grave word of warning. A devastating word of prophecy. Jesus, in the midst of this triumphal entry, is in the throes of sorrow. In the midst of the celebration and the fanfare, he sees the spiritual darkness all around him. He sees the city, as it were, cloaked in a spiritual blindness. From all outward appearances, the day of visitation is now, and they see it. Many, it appears, recognize it. But Jesus says, don't be fooled by outward appearances. They see me, but they don't see me. They can visually perceive me, but they have not received me. They do not even know the scriptures of which they quote. They are confused about the nature of their bondage. They are at a loss with regards to the true mission of which I have been sent. Though they recognize the evidences of fulfillment. Me riding on a donkey. They have their own ideas about what fulfillment means. The salvation that they are looking for is not the salvation I have come to bring. To their great disappointment. Jesus had not come to establish the glories of David's kingdom in a national sense. He, he didn't come to destroy Rome, which is what they hoped for, and to free Israel, to free Jerusalem from Roman oppression. In fact, this would have blown their minds. He came to save Rome. He came to save the people they wanted destroyed. He had come with deeper spiritual purposes in view. To save them from their bondage to sin and death and to transfer them into the kingdom of light. That's what he had come to do. He was the deliverer they needed, but he wasn't the deliverer they wanted. And within 40 years, Jerusalem will be utterly destroyed. You know that. From this moment to AD 70, where Jerusalem will be completely leveled and the temple utterly demolished, not one stone left upon another, just as Jesus quoted right there in Luke chapter 19. And when you realize the wider context of Psalm 118, it's a bit haunting. 
Because Psalm 118 even indicates some of it. You look at verses 25 and 26, not the section they're quoting from Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's what we read in verses 25 to 26 of Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. Give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. For the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. How ironic. The very chapter that they quote from to receive Jesus in the triumphal entry is the very chapter that indicts them with unbelief and rejection of Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans and again in 1 Corinthians that the crucifixion of Jesus, for those who disbelieve, who don't get it, becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is exactly what we will see in just a week's time. When the shouts of Hosanna are replaced with the shouts of crucify him. Crucify him. In short, Jesus was the Savior. Yes, they needed. The Savior we need. But is he really the Savior we're looking to? That is the question of this text. Applicationally. If you're a professing Christian here today, and I think I know a good number of you quite well. Most of you in this room would profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just committed believers in Him. If that's you, let me ask you. Are you following Jesus for the kingdom He is building? Or are you following Jesus that He might build your kingdom? That's a question of this text. You'll know it, even as Ethan indicated in the confession, you'll know it by when he thwarts your plans and how you respond. You'll know it when the things that you actually ought to take joy in, say when your enemies come to know the Lord, (laughs) and you find yourself upset about it. When things don't turn out the way that you thought that they should or or would, and, and the Lord was building a different kingdom. You know, this is, how that, this is how it works. I love the way Marva Dawn put it uh, years ago. She said, you know, in order for the Lord to build his kingdom in your life and through your life, he has to bring down your kingdom first. You, you see, in order to save Israel, in order to, to save any of us, you know what he has to do? He has to unbuild us first. To rebuild us into his kingdom. We have to let go of the things that we want, desire, The the dreams that we have in place that may or may not be accordance with His will. We want to hold life and all of our wishes with an open hand. And say, Lord, only give this or take this away to the degree that it aligns with your will and the building of your kingdom. Can you do that honestly? Can, Can you say that to the Lord? I'm a follower of Jesus. I attend Cornerstone faithfully. I love the Word. I I, I love to hear preaching and teaching. I love to sing. 
But, but is actually the heartbeat and the mark of your life one that's actually characterized by building the kingdom of the world rather than the kingdom of God? If real inventory was taken of our lives, not the, not the said priorities, the real ones, if they were really known, how many of us might be gathered singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we would see tears rolling down Jesus' face. You see, one day Jesus is coming again. He's going to, there is another triumphal entry. And, and that triumphal entry is the triumphal entry of all triumphal entries. It's the one that ends all triumphal entries. And, and when he comes, Revelation tells us, he is going to come on a horse that's different. That's different. It's different for a reason. He came on a donkey because he's telling you he came humble to save you. Humble yourself before Almighty God. Give up the things that are too tightly wound around your heart, the idols of which you serve, the real priorities of your life. Give them up, lay them on the altar, so to speak. Be a living sacrifice unto God because the day is coming where he will come with a sword. Mounted on a horse. And in that day he will come. And he will judge as the scripture tells us the living and the dead. Today is a day of salvation. You realize that? That moment in history has not happened. But this one has. This one has happened. We are in the era the epoch of history where salvation is growing, where God's grace is open to any and all who will trust in Christ alone for salvation. But this era is not forever. We need to know that. There is a day coming where a triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ will bring judgment and an end of all time and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. And there is not one of us who knows when that is. There's an urgency that this passage communicates to us. That we live in a time of grace, and the Lord is appealing to us in that. And listen to me. Your perfect theology is not what is going to get you to the place of grace. They knew the scriptures better than you did, and they missed him. This should humble us. This should teach us to say, Lord, in my knowledge and in my understanding, there's got to be a million things I don't get. And it would be very easy for me in the mysteries of your word to fill in a bunch of assumptions about what I think that causes me to lose my way in living out and following you in the kingdom of the time in which I live. Let's be humble about what we know. Let's hold fast to what the Lord has revealed. Let's be humble about how we know it works all out. And let's ask the Lord to correct us Correct us directly through His Spirit and turn our hearts towards the truth. Correct us through the church, through brothers and sisters who lead us to a greater knowledge of that truth. Because one thing that we see over and over in the Scriptures is this, that the people who are following God are constantly surprised. <laughs> but when He surprises us, let's be those with the surprise of the face of grace. And not the face of those in whom he would turn to and say, depart from me. 
I never knew you. Friends, as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ today in salvation, in this triumphant entry, let's remember that each time that we gather in his presence, eternity hangs in the balance. Let's walk by the light of the word. And let's cry out for his grace. For he will in no wise cast us out. Father in heaven, would you now even confirm these truths to us as your people as we submit ourselves humbly to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for revealing yourself to be a humble and patient servant who weeps over the unbelief of the people of which you have come to save. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. We we trust. Help us in our doubts. We know. Help us with the things we think we know and don't really. And be patient with us. Look to Jesus when you look to us and save us. Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.